Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So for long-term listeners of my daily show, it means you've been listening for more than a week, you'll remember that uh, the end of every conversation, I always ask the guests for a, a, a book recommendation to, to read in our age of the coronavirus. And the one thing I always say to them is the one book you're not allowed to refer to is uh, Albert Camus' The Plague, because everyone always talks about that. And my guest today, though, is allowed to talk about The Plague if she wants to. She is the New York-based uh, book critic, writer, and translator, Liesl Schillinger. She's also a professor uh, at the New School uh, and she wrote an excellent piece. Many of you would have actually read it uh, for LitHub uh, last week called What We Can Learn and Should Unlearn from Albert Camus' The Plague. Liesl, welcome to Keen On. Thank you. Very happy to be here or not here. So uh, do you want to talk about The Plague or can we dump that one? Well, I think we we can't exactly dump it, but we don't need to linger on it. But let's start off with it, just because uh, a thing. I don't know if your other readers are like me, uh, reading all kinds of books that relate to different epidemics and and plagues in the past. But uh, the way that Camus writes about it or chose to think about it uh, really matters as a kind of key to all of them. I think uh, some of them are a lot of fun. You know, like Boccaccio's Decameron uh, is just a bunch of saucy stories, you know, mostly, although the introduction is really uh, serious. Um, but the one theme that Camus brings out in The Plague that I think is really worth underscoring is that the plague he really has in mind is fascism, was fascism. The idea that a physical contagion affects society in a way that an ideological contagion does, too. And so um, a lot of these books, no, no matter what century they're written in, seem to have that as a kind of running uh, subtext, counterpoint, playing under whatever the story is. And uh, since we have the emergence of this epidemic of corona at the same time that we have a really unusual government uh, where the president and the attorney general are taking all kinds of powers unto themselves that make democratically minded people nervous. Um, I, I think it's really worthwhile to keep that thought in mind. So you're suggesting that you can't really read or write about the plague uh, without thinking somehow metaphorically, particularly about politics. Well, not just politics, about uh, society and, and, and in the world you live in. And one of the books that I was thinking about, it's just a, a massive doorstop that I, I think I read when I was 13. And was it Martin Amos who said you can't remember a book much a, a month, a year after you've read it? I, I, I remember Magic Mountain to an extent, but um, that was written in a way about the plague of tuberculosis, 
up at, up at Davos in Switzerland. Uh, and uh, Thomas Mann started writing it in 1912, which was the same year, by the way, that he wrote Death in Venice, which was about cholera, but wasn't about cholera. Um, but I'll talk about that in a second. But he started writing Magic Mountain in, in 1912, and then World War I broke out. And so it really, this book, even though it is about a bunch of people who are all kind of sheltering in place up at this spa in Davos, is about the transformation of bourgeois society or about Thomas Mann's ideas of bourgeois society, um, all, all played th with illness as the backdrop. And so uh, that's one example of how people use an epidemic to sort of look at society and how people are changed by this fear the extent to which they acknowledge it or don't, and how it affects their lives. And then Death in Venice is, to some extent at least, a, a, a book about sexuality and disease, isn't it? Well, Death in Venice is, sure it is. The, the, the whole idea of Death in Venice is that a man comes down to Venice and spots this beautiful boy named Tadeusz, but he calls him Tadzio, a Polish boy, and he regards the boy as an ideal sort of as like as if you were a Michelangelo statue or that's how it's how it begins but he's essentially stalking this boy and while he's stalking the boy uh uh cholera is stalking the city of Venice although as now the reports of the disease and its spread had been suppressed so as not to discourage travelers <laughs> from visiting the town and so as this disease is stalking the town. Um, the man is stalking the youth. And it's it's essential. You could say it's about how love is like a sickness. Uh, that's not quite as explicit, but um, the underlying homoerotic tension, and I'm sorry to sound so academic, but um, is, is also uh, seething beneath the surface of the story, just like the disease that's um, spreading silently across Venice. Um, I know another book that you are intrigued by in, in, uh, this time is uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. How does that fit in to your reading list uh, while we're all sitting at home? Well, uh, Love in the Time of Cholera is um, uh, it's, it's a beautiful book. God, Marcia Marquez is amazing. I mean, if I were reading one of his books right now, it would probably be to reread a uh, hundred years of solitude. I mean, just because we're in an epidemic doesn't mean that we have to only read about um, pandemic because um, it really means that we're all stuck at home with our books um, or with our Kindles and, and have more time to read than we maybe used to have, um, even if we're just waiting for Amazon deliveries and getting distracted all the time. But Love in the Time of Cholera is really just I, I believe that it's more about love being the epidemic. It's, you know, small C cholera is the theme, love, capital L. It's it's the way that the prey, that, that love and jealousy preys on the mind. Uh, and cholera is, it comes up, I, I don't think cholera is as important to the book as love is. Um, but uh, if, if I could just dip back, though, into the Magic Mountain, though, there is this line early on in the book where Thomas Mann is, kind of explaining why Hans Kostrup has gone up to Davos because he doesn't have TB yet when he goes up to that to that retreat. He's kind of ill, but not very. Um, but there's this line that says, a human being lives out not only his personal life as an individual, but also consciously or subconsciously the lives of his epoch and contemporaries. And so that's kind of what we're, that's kind of what I'm looking 
for when I when I when I was looking at these books, I was thinking about how we see our society mirrored back to me, back to us when it's under threat by something like this. All the books you've mentioned so far are twentieth century uh, are written by twentieth century writers: uh, Thomas Mann, uh, Albert uh, Camus, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But let's go back a few more hundred years, mm-hmm. perhaps to Samuel Pepys. Uh, or even to the Decameron, to ages in the, in, the, in the late Middle Ages or early modern period, where the plague uh, really was a mass killer in ways that e- even in today's coronavirus age, we can't really imagine. Right. Well, uh, yeah, a third of Europe was killed by the bubonic plague in the 14th century. It's just unimaginable. And then it revisited uh, uh, revisited London in the 1660s, in the 17th century, uh, for the Black Death, the Great Plague of London. So yeah, it just laid people low. And I've been reading up on it for writing different pieces I've been writing since this epidemic struck. And there, there are theories that maybe it wasn't bubonic plague maybe that really was the Black Death. Maybe there was another plague that was more like Ebola, uh, which was... Uh, so a virus, you know, there are all kinds of theories, but let's assume it's bubonic. I don't mean to get scientific, but um, yeah, if you go back to the Decameron and Boccaccio, what really struck me about it is that it begins with a sort of sober uh, introduction of what's been going on in Florence when Boccaccio writes this book. Um, but even it is beautifully written and it's and the author is like apologizing for being grim and says, just think of this as the mountain you have to climb over until you get to the gorgeous sunlit, you know, fields of wildflowers or something. And the fields of wildflowers are these hundred stories, 10 stories a day for 10 days that seven women and three men are, are telling each other to, to beguile the time while they're hiding away outside of Florence in a villa, uh, sheltering and avoiding contagion. And their stories are, 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 are ribald and they're funny. I remember one I was reading last night was, um, a, a young wife is married to a hideous aged merchant and she works out a way to cheat on him by tying a piece of twine to her toe that dangles out the window and her lover will creep by under the window at night and tug on the twine. And if her husband is, 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 is sleeping like a log, she'll sneak out and tryst with him. So, you know, these are, these are fun stories by men and women who are very flirtatious. And so it's, it's sort of funny thinking that, you know, okay, it's the plague, but they, they're surviving it. And, and they're still, not only are they surviving it, they're still having fun. They're still flirting. They're still making merry. And this point was made, came home to me last week when I was, uh, zooming with some of my students to catch them up on what we were missing last week. And I have two different classes and a couple of the students, uh, zoomed with me from some from back some back deck and then I went to the other class and another student was there on the same back deck and I said what's going on and she said well actually three of us are sheltering out in Montauk <laughs> this lovely beach town mm. and so I said to them well what you guys are doing is this is the new decameron start writing stories um because you know they've got the sunshine and the sand and they're all great writers and they've got stories to tell so I think we'll be seeing lots of Decameron type stories coming out certainly in this age when everyone can blog or or, or post whatever they want. Um, but I, I, I really, I'm, I'm going to assign them as homework to write a Decameron type tale to give to the class in one of our Zoom meetings. 
Um, but so, so the Cameron people, uh, that was, thir- that was in the 14th century. Um, that's a great thing to read right now. Um, but one thing that could kind of crack you up is Samuel Pepys wrote these diaries from 1660 to 1669. And we know, Everyone knows about them loosely. I don't know how many of us have actually read deeply in them, but like he would put little, little, little check marks for every time he had sex. I mean, these were very sort of like a daily log of his activities and sort of chatty and, and basic and talkative. But he did keep a, a journal during the plague year, uh, and it was the first glimmering that you see that there was going to be a plague was in, I think, 19, I'm sorry, 1664 in his journal when he noticed that he, when he wrote down that he'd heard that there might be some plague in Holland. And then in fact does come. Um, But a fun thing that happens if you keep on reading is, yes, there is the plague and he describes it uh, in great detail. You hear about the red crosses that were marked on the doors of the homes of people who had plague in London uh, and you and you do see it spread, but you also see that he kept up his his amorous adventures. So he was, and he, it's also it was his most profitable year ever, or he wrote at the time. So he was doing a great. His work was going well, and he was still uh, keeping up his his clandestine love life. So life went on, and there's something affirming in that. I think. Um, no conversation, of course, about books would ever be complete without some mention of Hilary Mantel. <laughs> uh, I, I know that uh, you think Wolf Hall is also an interesting book to read or reread in in, in today's uh, age of the coronavirus. Well, and of course, we've now got the sequel just out, uh, and uh, my book club wanted to read the sequel, but we did read Wolf Hall. Uh, it's, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Its name is so totemic. It's like, uh, is it the bell and the light? I don't remember. We can look it up. But um, so in Wolf Hall. Cromwell goes away from home and returns to find that his wife and his two daughters have all died of an, of an epidemic called the sweating sickness that was afflicting England in the 15th century. And I'm, I'm not sure what that uh, sickness was, uh, but it, 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 it took, it, it, people did sweat and, and they died. There's some theory that it also was an Ebola like virus. Um, but there was a, it's beautiful and touching because if you read earlier in Wolf Hall, there's this moment when his daughter Grace, whom he just adores, plays an angel in a Christmas pageant, and he makes wings for her out of peacock feathers. And after she dies so quickly, taken away by this sweating sickness, he um, comes across her wings, her, her peacock's wings that he'd made for her in a storeroom. And there's this line uh, where Cromwell is, is, is contemplating these and it goes um he touches them his finger comes away dusty he shifts his candle out of danger then lifts them from the bag and gently shakes them they make a soft sound of hissing and a faint amber perfume washes into the air he hangs them back on the peg passes over them the palm of his hand to soothe them and to still their shiver and so you know when you read a book like that uh so beautifully written what you're you're of course seeing Thomas Cromwell's unspeakable sadness at the loss of his daughter carried through those faded wings. Uh, and there's such pathos there. But one thing that one thing that we're all maybe thinking about in a time like this is that, you know, we're not used to people being taken so quickly. It's this is new, this sense of vulnerability. And that's such a major 
major point that Camus makes in The Plague, that the first thing that happens in a, pest in, in a pestilence, in an epidemic, whether it's ideology or disease, is people's sense of exile from themselves and from each other, but also from their sense of their own futures. You know, right. um, let's 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 exile ourselves from time as well. Let's go from uh, the 15th and 16th century England to the future to science fiction. I know you had a couple of books or short stories that you think might be worth revisiting on the science fictional front. Well, ab- absolutely. I mean, science fiction really is a kind of um, theology, if you if you ask me. I mean, if, if anyone's read um, Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep, which is, mm. of course, um, the book that produced uh, Blade Runner, um, mm. or, uh, well, really just any science fiction, people are scheming what could happen in the future. Uh, and a lot of that is all about the same topic that arrested man, Thomas Mann, which is, you know, what will society be like? What will people's interrelations be like with science or technology or whatever? I I really loved Robert Heinlein when I was in my teens. I remember a book called Farnham's Freehold. Uh, Everyone always knows about his book, Stranger in a Strange Land, but Farnham's Freehold. uh, I I recommend that. But um, no, but so the book that I was particularly going to recommend is one that my book club read only Monday night. We met for the first time in 20 years virtually on Zoom. And the book that we had chosen, uh, not realizing quite how relevant it would feel, was Severance by Ling Ma. And she only wrote that last year. She was born in China, but, um, you know, grew up in America. But this book is, it's it's just terrific for addressing now. Uh, it, 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 it now is almost eerie reading how the disease proceeds through America. Its author, its narrator, sorry, its narrator is in New York City. And she's kind of a detached woman who has a photo blog where she chronicles the lives of everyday New York in this kind of, Carteshi way, or maybe Cartier-Bresson kind of way, but she's kind of oblivious in her way and um, isn't kind of noticing at the office where she works that like fewer and fewer people are turning up. The entire city is under quarantine and Broadway closes and the business closes. And um, it begins with her actually on the road, on a kind of road trip. She's taken up with a kind of band of stragglers who are going to some abandoned mall outside of Chicago, where the leader of the group, who's kind of a would-be would be Christ figure, cult leader, is taking them. And she had worked for a, a, a Bible factory, uh, or rather a publishing house that prints vi- Bibles as a kind of vanity item, you know, with little jewels for teenage girls or, or whatever. But they're all sourced around the world in China. And so she goes to China to look at the factory. But the disease is called the Shen fever. And what it does is it essentially turns people into zombies, but not the means kind of brain eating ones, but just they cease to be alive in any real way. And just as Camus was actually writing about fascism, she's really writing about consumer culture. She's writing about the deadening uh, effect of uh, essentially technology. The internet comes up a lot and shopping and even social media, the way that there is no authentic self because your your she calls the internet a reservoir of nostalgia. People are living in the past anyway. And so she's looking at the way in which people repeat the, their acts by rote, 
you know, time and time again. And, and, and the zombies do the acts that the real people were doing in life. And when people become zombified by Shen fever, you almost can't tell because it's so close to how we're living in everyday life. Uh, it's, it's just a haunting thought. And it reminded me of a brilliant book by Tom McCarthy that came out a few years ago called Remainder, which is also, uh, a man is replaying, um, episodes of life. He's, he's staging simple scenes that catches his mind. He's, 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 he's getting thousands of people to reenact these sort of loops of activity over and over. And that also brings you back to Sartre and nausea. So Lizzo, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Finally, as I ask everybody else on this show, one recommendation, I'm guessing it's severance. Is it if, if, if people, I have to admit, I'm rather embarrassed that I, I hadn't heard of the book. We discussed it before this, uh, this formal interview. Uh, but the book did pretty well. I mean, it, it won some awards last year. Could you perhaps be a little bit more specific on, on, on the writer and when it came out? Well, the, the writer is named Ling Ma, and she was born in China but grew up here. She went to the University of Chicago, uh, and uh, she lives in Chicago now. The book came out in 2019. So it's uh, – I may be wrong about that. Let me just check. No, sorry. The book came out in 2018. So uh, I'll just repeat that Severance came out in 2018. And Ling Ma, uh, she, for, for this book, she got the Whiting Prize just a week ago. She won the Kirkus Prize for fiction. She got the uh, New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. And, uh, you know, this is, she's just a tremendous writer and I can't wait to read her other books. Well, you've convinced me. Usually, uh, I don't take uh, any notice of, of what people, other people advise, but this one sounds brilliant. And perhaps I can get her on the show too. Uh, Ling Ma, if you're listening, you have an open invitation to come on the show and talk about severance. And can I just tell you about two surprising books that people should read that aren't necessarily thought of as literary, but which I think, well, one of them is, but one isn't that I think are... Very, very briefly, Lisa. You've got to read uh, The Bodice Ripper Forever Amber, written by uh, Kay Windsor, Kathleen Windsor. Uh, and uh, it was, it's, it's set in the 17th century. And the central chapters are all about the plague when it hits London. And uh, the wench Amber St. Clair has the chance to tend her lover, Bruce, Lord Carlton, who falls sick with plague. But, but, but to write this book, Windsor went into Daniel Defoe's journal, The Plague Year, and went into Peeps's diary, so it's it's quite authentic, but it's also romantic and and fun uh, as much as the plague can be fun. But that's a good way to get it to to, to to get a feeling for life under plague. And the other one is I'm actually in, before this even struck, I started reading Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese, which I had never read before. A beautiful, beautiful book. I think it came out ten years ago, but it begins with a ship that is taken by um, a, a an epidemic, uh, and uh, the heroine emerges from that, and so does the brief hero. Uh, but uh, that 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 book is 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 really uh, worth reading. And now I have the time to read it. Well, Lizzo, you've given us. Uh, thank you so much. You've given us enough reading for the next six months. I hope <laughs> in six months' time we'll all be let out of our homes. Uh, but if we're not, we'll be back with you to get the next six months reading. And best of luck, um, best of luck in your uh, in 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 your retreat, and enjoy all those books. Thank you, and you enjoy yours too. Bye bye. 
You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.